came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Metting. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Ksenia. How are you? Hey. Hey, Jason. I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. So last night we were cooking and baking for mm. Eli's birthday. He turned nine. Yeah, happy birthday, so, Eli. Yay. Yeah. Getting big, it's crazy. He's the youngest and they're going to be double digits, which also means that the oldest is going to go to college soon. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I came in from work and Deb had been baking. Mm. And when she cooks and bakes, doesn't put anything away. And then the counters just fill with all the different ingredients and like bits of splatter and spillage. Mm. And it's just like a creative disaster. Mm. And so I came in from work and was like, okay, and just start like putting stuff away and like organizing around the cooker because I wanted to make food. So making it all like organized so I can just make the food simply, mm-hmm. but also putting away the mess. And then I wasn't even thinking, I was, we were just like passing. I was like, Deborah, it seems like we have different approaches to organizing the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> she was dying laughing. <laughs> I like so, that. I like yeah go on so after she finished like picked Mm. herself off the floor from laughing about this then I was like it's totally different in our usual life because I'm usually more disorganized like organizing packing or a trip or you know from working with me like trying to stick to deadlines all this stuff she's better at but when it comes to something (laughs) like creative in the kitchen Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like total chaos and and I'm more organized in the kitchen. So I thought that was a, an interesting sh- story to share. That, that's a good observation. I like it. Yeah. I mean, we've established a rule a long time ago, one person in the kitchen. Oh, really? Because if there is more than one, then there is a murder. Right. Uh, you know, so do not interfere. <laughs> so you see, ontologically, your kitchen approach is a different... <laughs> True, but I think it's appropriate as well to think about different approaches to organization this season, right? Because we're talking about how people work together and the problems they have working together. And uh, today's topic is anarchism. And so it's perfectly in my office is like organized chaos. Deborah's kitchen is definitely chaos. Mine is more organized. Oh my God, I would have killed you if I were cooking and you would come and start cleaning. I would have like literally killed you. Really? Yeah. <laughs> when I'm cooking, I like, I put away ingredients as I continue. No, no. And I clean as I cook so no. that there's not a big mess at the end. No, it's inefficient. You're inefficient. How is that inefficient? Well, you then do everything like in one go and it takes less time. No way. Yes. I just, I can't concentrate on the cooking if there's stuff piling up everywhere. Why can't you? Um, It's your problem. (laughs) Sounds like a you problem. 
So it was great to open the season last week with Jacob Reams. And as you probably all gather, to begin an exploration of solidarity with you all. This is something Ksenia and I and many of our comrades have been pondering in the context of disaster practice and research. And we're excited to be able to dig into this deeper this season. Yes, totally. And of course, when we talk about solidarity, we often somehow end up thinking and talking about anarchism. I don't know, maybe it's just us, you know, maybe that is not a natural conversation. I think it's natural. Okay, fine. It's natural. And so anarchism is exactly what today's episode is going to focus on. And as always, we have a perfect guest for this conversation. Alex, welcome. Hi, Ksenia. Hi, Jason. Hey, welcome. So, quick introduction. Dr. Alexander Christianopoulos is a reader in politics and international relations at the School of Social Science and Humanities at Loughborough University. So we're kind of neighbors, you know, 10 minutes walk away from each other. Alex's research focuses on religious anarchism and increasingly anarcho-pacifism. Alex is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Pacifism and Nonviolence, and he is the author of a recently published book, Tolstoy's Political Thought. Christian, anarcho-pacifist, iconoclasm, then and now. It's great to have you here with us today, Alex. Thanks for having me. A real pleasure. That, this is exciting. Thanks for being with us, Alex. And um, for those listening, I guess it won't be surprising to you that I'm quite interested in anarchism as theory and practice. And I have lots of questions in my mind. But let's start from the beginning, Alex. How did you get to be interested in anarchism? and religious anarchism in particular, as well as anarcho-pacifism. So, yeah, if it was a job interview, I would have a coherent answer as to how this was all (laughs) planned in advance and aiming for a particular purpose. But it was partly accidental and gradual and partly because of the people I was hanging out with, I suppose, partly because I'd long been sort of observing the world and being bothered about violence, suffering, injustice, but, you know, in in more instinctive terms originally, I suppose. And I suppose early on, you know, as a child, I think there's that moment when you realize that grown-ups are not very good at arranging things. They pretend they are, but Mm. actually there's a lot of suffering and violence and whatever else. And I suppose I tried by, you know, in my teens, early uni years, I was interested in all sorts of different ways of looking at it and how society works. But eventually anarchism, you know, I suppose my interest converged or I ended up landing with anarchism as a way of explaining this or offering an explanation for this. Because anarchism, as I see it, is, you know, as heavily critical on inequality as it is on authoritarianism. And so in that sense, it's kind of keen on both equality and liberty, things that are often said to sort of not go together. We can come back to that later if you want. And also anarchism is quite alert to the way we structure decision making and how that can end up being quite oppressive. And I long have had an interest in that. I suppose in parallel, really always in the background was a kind of pacifist leaning, I suppose. And again, we can come back to that later if you want, but it's not necessarily an absolutist pacifism. Pacifism isn't necessarily an absolutist position the way sometimes people assume it is. But if violence is wrong in all sorts of contexts, why is it much more acceptable when the state does it, for example, are among the questions mm-hmm. I was long interested in. And so all that came together when I was starting my PhD, which was in the very early post 9-11 years when religion was quite visible in politics, right? It was being talked about. And I was interested in that too. And originally then 
I wanted to look at the relationship between religious and political structures, got to realize it didn't really work. And I can't remember, this is really embarrassing. I still can't remember how I landed on Tolstoy first. Like, but I landed on Tolstoy and I, you know, I picked up, I think the first thing was, you know, his kingdom of God is within you, which is, I suppose, the main long book that he writes in the last 30 years of his life when he's become a Christian through his pacifism. And it clearly tickled me. And I also quickly realized in English anyway, that not being really a kind of book length study of his political and religious thoughts. So the PhD was going to be on that originally, on kind of Tolstoy's political and religious thought. It then became clear that uh, for various reasons that wouldn't be the PhD. And partly it was also that Tolstoy kind of leaves a few gaps. And if you're going to make the argument that Christianity should amount to a form of anarchism through an absolutist kind of rejection of violence, then you have to address things like render unto Caesar, Romans 13, a couple of passages that he kind of dismisses quite quickly. And then it turns out that quite a few other authors have argued things in a way that are quite complementary to Tolstoy. And so in the end, I ended up doing the PhD on, I suppose, Christian anarchism more generally. The way I put it in there is I try and weave together the otherwise fairly loose threads of Christian interpretation that in, that uh, argues that Christianity properly understood the teaching of Jesus, his example, should amount to a form of anarchism because of a commitment to pacifism or something along those lines. Several writers had written about this, but never really been brought together. So the PhD became about. And then after that, I spent quite a while still kind of exploring Tolstoy and eventually writing the book that Senya mentioned. And when that finished, you know, recently, I suppose, three, four years ago, after what, 15, 20 years of kind of looking at religion and anarchism and sort of Tolstoy, then I decided to, I suppose, zoom it out more on questions of theism and how you can apply an anarcho-pacifist lens, not necessarily a religious one, but potentially, I suppose, to, to all sorts of questions, including IR, international relations theory. At the moment, I'm working on a paper on an anarcho-pacifist critique of the EU or the project, the European project. This is as a child of the EU, right? I was born in Brussels, raised in Brussels, made to, I don't know, grow as a Euro child, a Euro brat, I think the economist called me. Anyway, so I'm now looking at this now, but sorry, long answer, but that's kind of the meandering way in which I've ended up where I am. And I guess I, I should say, partly I've been lucky because I've had the education, the parental support that's allowed me to explore these things. And that's not open to everyone. And I'm well aware of the element of luck there too. It's really interesting, Alex. I was wondering in relation to Christianity and anarchism, like to put it in context for our listeners, is there any traditions within Christianity that represent this? Where do you see Christian anarchism? Today, the most vibrant example is probably still the Catholic worker movement, as it's called. It's actually constituted not that primarily by Catholics anymore, although it's founded by Dorothy Day, a devout Catholic. I suppose the most devout Catholic-like example of a main figure in Christian anarchist writings that you're going to find, I think. She founded it with Peter Morin and her others, Eamon Hennessy, come later. And I mean, last time I looked, they claimed to have about 200 houses of hospitality, they call them, and some rural houses of various kind of, yeah, local houses that they either rent or someone's given to them where they provide help for the most destitute, soup kitchens, they help, you know, migrants waiting for paperwork through their home office, whatever. They demonstrate against various local and national injustices, but they're kind of communities that try and exemplify 
a kind of Christian lifestyle as I see it today. And they might not all use the A word, anarchism, <laughs> but they are often mentioned as the closest example you're going to find of a substantial community. Apart from that, you have a lot of people online who will identify with this. And there are various groups and some of them kind of go downhill quite quickly through various trolls and whatever. Others are a bit more sustained. But so the, and I suppose it's especially the case in the US to find these kinds of examples of people interested in this anarchist interpretation of Christianity. That said, there have been ever since anarchism is a word that's used as an ideology, mid-19th century, right, Proudhon onwards, there have been examples of Christian anarchists, Tolstoy's 19th century, there are others since. It's always been, you know, a sort of fringe group of people and writers as part of a fringe ideology that anarchism has often been. So it's always a bit on the side. And I suppose I should acknowledge it's a it's it's a position within anarchism, a movement. I don't know if it's a movement, a group, a grouping that is controversial for quite a few anarchists too. Let's admit this, right? Most anarchists are anti-clerical and potentially atheistic or anti-religion. Actually, most Christian anarchists are anti-clerical too, for also for similar reasons for that matter. And the other one is because the church betrayed the revolutionary teaching of Jesus as they see it. So you have that, but you also have attention because for, yes, for Christian anarchists, it's an interpretation of Christianity often that brings them to their anarchism. And that's not always easy for what do you want to call them, secular anarchists, if we need that category. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, those would be the examples I'd point to, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I guess the other thing is, historically, Christian anarchists will say that you have examples of radical Christians who have tried to live out something close to the teaching and example, and, and example of Jesus from the early Christians through to various reformation offshoots and various kind of Protestant churches. And so they'll say that there's various examples historically that go in our direction even if they're not necessarily using the word because it's not been coined yet if that, if that makes sense. let's talk a little bit about anarchism in disaster context and i just feel that very often when you say the word anarchism you know and of, like many people associated with chaos or mass or disorder rather than with it being a political philosophy, right, a political movement that actually seeks to abolish the state and, of course, including the capitalist state. So it's almost seen like anarchism equals bad, right? And somehow this yes. is ingrained in people's minds. And so I'm actually not sure how often in disaster context, many see the practice of anarchism, you know, particularly when it comes to mutual care and solidarity and as well as resistance to state. So everything that really resonates so well with anarchist thought from Poudon to Bakunin as relevant to disasters. Although, of course, we are very often talk about exactly the same things as a way of reducing disaster risk creation, right? And addressing the root causes of disasters. And I kind of started noticing that Kropotkin is sort of now featuring a bit more in our conversation, but then equally that probably reflects a very niche circle of friends that Jason and I have. But I do know that a few of our friends and comrades are using Kropotkin in their disaster scholarship classes, you know, and mutual aid is read by some students. Yeah. So do you think anarchist philosophy is something that we really need to engage more when we study and when we discuss disasters and conflict? 
Yes, but in, uh, and now the caveat is I'm not a disaster studies scholar, so I don't know exactly what the discourse is, you know, the debate, uh, the, the engagement at, at the moment. It does make sense that Kropotkin is someone that those scholars interested in it would be looking at. I think there are multiple ways in which, well, it strikes me from where I sit, anarchism could be of interest. One is that central to anarchism, as I said before, is decision-making, right? How we take decisions, how we organize ourselves politically, economically, how we reach our decisions collectively is important because it can quickly be oppressive, problematic, dominate. Anarchists have long been keen on decision-making processes that are equitable, fair, transparent, etc. And my guess is that, you know, in looking at how communities respond to disasters, you're looking at different types of organization. I use the word loosely as in actual institutions or ways of organizing anything in between. You have such a wide diversity that will include very bottom up, very equitable ways of organizing and more top down, more authoritarian ones. Not necessarily always come together. Now, yes, importantly, the kind of topic of solidarity is really big in anarchism and mutual aid. I mean, Kropotkin argues, by the way, one of the points I make to my undergrads, they don't expect Kropotkin to crop up on the module on state <laughs> violence and terrorism, but it does. And one of the points I make by the by is how um, Kropotkin's interpretation of Darwin doesn't contradict Darwin, but uses Darwin and elaborates Darwin against social Darwinists to argue mm. that he accepts that survival of the fittest is kind of the norm, but the point is that it's the species that is fittest that survives, and the species to survive needs to survive needs mutual aid. A species that doesn't practice mutual aid is facing a threat to its very own survival. You can see how that extrapolates back onto the way we organize our political economy today. I'm not sure we're very good at practicing mutual aid as a human race, at least not through neoliberal variants of capitalism and whatnot. Mm. And so for our own survival, mutual aid might be important and it might be something that can be exemplified yeah, from the bottom up by communities um, in response to various disasters. In fact, I think they do. And you find all sorts of movements and ways in which humans seem to organize in response to disasters or to shocks like the pandemic that reflect anarchistic principles. They might not adopt the anarchism, the language of anarchism. They might not even be aware that what they're doing is very bottom up, very egalitarian, whatever else, but it's very anarchistic. You can see that as well with things like social movements, the indignados, you know, Occupy and so on, all sorts of organizations, you know, leaderless, whatever, that exemplify ways of organizing that are very anarchistic. I mean, also, things that matter for anarchism will include the distribution of resources and making sure that's, you know, fair, again, also for kind of the resilience and stability of that distribution and for anarchists one thing that matters especially is land right access to land because it's out of land that you feed yourselves and the obscene acquisition of land by a few next to people who have nothing and who could perfectly till that land and feed a community out of it is just outrageous as far as anarchists are concerned another thing that anarchists i think are quite useful on is what i hinted at earlier which is that anarchism 
refuses, I think, to prioritize freedom over equality or vice versa. We're often told, right, so you know, that these things can't be elevated to the same degree. Either you prioritize freedom and you'll be more of a liberal type or, you know, communism or socialism prioritizes equality over freedom. Well, anarchists call the BS on that. They'll argue that absolutely not. Both can be elevated just as much. And in fact, if they're not, it's problematic because it's either too authoritarian or not egalitarian enough. Against that also, it's the observation, I think, that comes from anarchism that the current order is not working, right? Mm -hmm. The current order might be efficient at leading us as a human community to produce and consume more, but it's not very good at kind of making sure this is distributed equally or fairly. It's not very good at mutual aid. It's not very good, therefore, at preserving even our planets, our home. And so the sooner we pay attention to the way we organize politics and economics and experiment with alternatives, the better. This is so interesting. You know, sorry, <laughs> since you were talking about Kropotkin, I came up with a new game, which I should, I think we should all think, you know, every time Kropotkin crops up in a random teaching material, we should all drink, you know, it'll be great, <laughs> <laughs> great drinking game. Yeah, Not there we go. Too, I presume. Anyway. Uh, well, you know, to respect Kropotkin, Kropotkin, right, yeah. of course, right, it can't yeah. do anything else. But anyway, going back to kind of to mutual aid, you know, in the anarchistic values, I think what we've seen, you've mentioned pandemic, is that actually there's been this tendency, and Jason and I, we spoke quite a lot about this with our guests on the podcast, in how these anarchistic values of, you know, of solidarity and care and mutual aid actually been wonderfully turned by the kind of monstrosity of neoliberalism, right? And turn, almost kind of through the prism of resilience have become these Machiavellian tools in that, oh, guys, you know, you can mutually support each other. Excellent, you're resilient. So we're just going to keep throwing stuff at you, keep knocking you, and you can continue mutually support each other, right? Yes, and, you know, just as maddening, but very typical too, is the co-optation of the language of mutual aid and of if not anarchist ideas, ideas that come from the bottom up. Mutual aid is something that few people used as a term until the pandemic. And then as a response to the pandemic, all sorts of mutual aid communities bubbled up all across, certainly the UK and I think elsewhere too, with that name, right? Because anarchists were involved very often in their local communities from the ground up. Now the state uses it and preaches it because of course, mutual aid is a nice little substitute. You do the caring for each other. We'll just do the ripping you off <laughs> bit or the ensuring that the regulations, you know, that, that put us in this place continue unabated you also have things like the good ideas getting colonized you know anything i was listening again recently to the taking of the knee in sports has become a thing and how kaepernick you know faced all sorts of difficulties after he did that but of course nike then comes in and says this is brilliant this is just do it and so we can colonize that and he becomes an icon and, and you get all these things right you get absorbed back because this this political economy, this capitalist system will colonize even the more radical circles as soon as it can. Here's a t-shirt. So, you know, you can buy made in Vietnam under terrible conditions to sort of, you know, signal <laughs> your virtue. And so what can you do? This is, I suppose, partly evidence that these ideas resonate and also something to be alert to. And I guess to bring it back to anarchism through the back door, but making a slightly different comment, I think one of the things I like about... <laughs> having an anarchist in the meeting is the thing that comes with anarchism is an alertness to how 
political institutions can suddenly turn south in a moral sense, right? Turn ugly, turn authoritarian or problematic. I've long been interested in how all sorts of institutions and ideas begin from the ground up with all sorts of aspirations and soon enough ossify and become the very enemies of their original ideas. That's a whole that's a whole other debate we could have. I think what anarchism does or anarchists often do is they remain alert to the way these things get organized and how the drift can take you away from the original intention. And so therefore, yes, you get all these things that you mentioned, co-optation as well, to use the vocabulary I used, colonization of radical circles. But I suppose the anarchist impulse is to remain alert to that, or the invitation from anarchists to everyone else is to remain alert to what's happening as these things evolve in order to avoid them becoming, you know, another part of the same old system carrying on. This is such an interesting conversation and so appropriate for disaster practitioners and scholars to think on. So I'm excited we get to, to have it today. And your work, Alex, focused on Leo Tolstoy. I don't know if many people actually associate his name with anarchist values, because yeah. of course his ideas are often perceived as reactionary, misguided, utopian. But I would say much of his thought addresses what we might call the root causes of disaster in our field, i.e. injustice, exploitation, marginalization. For instance, he argues that the power of some people over others doesn't arrive simply because of money, but because the labor does not receive the full value of the labor. And also that economics in general is a tool for devising excuses for violence. And if we're really concerned about suffering, we should stop exploiting working people. So it sounds pretty current to me, considering what we're facing in our societies. Maybe it's the only alternative to the crisis that we're in today to think about anarchism. What do you think? Can you tell us more about your work on Tolstoy? Yeah, well, sure. And of course, I agree that he's an interesting read today. So yes, this is a, this is the same Tolstoy as the Tolstoy who wrote War and Peace, Anna Karenina, of course. <laughs> the conventional story that he himself said tells is that as he's writing Anna Karenina in the 1870s, he's going through a kind of deep existential crisis. What's the point of living and doing anything in life if death is to follow? Something along those lines. He says in typically Tolstoyan fashion, in a book written at the end of it, which he calls a confession in a long tradition there, deliberately using that vocabulary. He says he searches for the answer in all the branches of knowledge, finds nothing, and eventually the coin drops when he's reading, not for the first time, but this time paying attention to what's being said, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount and specifically the business about turning the other cheek and not resisting evil. And for him, he says the realization that opens everything up from him, for him is that Jesus really meant what he said, that in order to not commit evil, do none yourself, something along those lines. And for him, that opens up a completely different outlook. That's how he'll describe it. And he'll then spend the rest of his life from 1879-ish to his death in 1910, 30 years or so, banging on about this new understanding that he has reached, which you could call, which it, I suppose the title, the subtitle of my book calls Christian anarcho-pacifist iconoclasm. Okay, so there's the various elements in there. And he says all sorts of things. So he's a pacifist because he reckons that fundamentally the root problem of it all is violence and the willingness that too many of us concede to, to commit violence against our fellows, either directly or indirectly, either 
from the bottom up as revolutionaries or, or top down through the state or through the, the relations that we have with one another through the state. He therefore is also an anarchist, so he develops all sorts of anarchist thought because of his absolute commitment to pacifism. It's because he rejects all violence that he rejects the violence of the state. And so, yes, of course, the czarist autocratic state of his time, but actually he extends that to the democracies of his time too. And all sorts of top-down violence is problematic. He's vehemently anti-clerical too, because the church has betrayed Jesus's radical teaching and so on, that kind of line. He's very critical of church rituals, of church dogma, etc. He becomes very critical of art as a form of escapism for the comfortable already. He's got controversial views on sex and marriage, on bodily pleasures. He becomes an early vegetarian. I don't know if he advocates a form of nonviolent activism, but the kind of response he advocates is a form of nonviolence. And so in the book, I precisely go through these five, his sort of pacifism, his anarchism, his anti-clericalism, his asceticism, and his nonviolent activism. And each time I try and because he never really systematizes his thought anywhere. There isn't a single treatise. He writes different things for different publics. I try and systematize that and give lots of quotes and then reflect on criticisms of it and how it might still be of relevance to us today or how it's resonated since he's written that up to us today. And the thing is, on each of these, he is thought-provoking, but he's also problematic. On each of these, he's an extremist and an absolutist. So I said earlier, Bism isn't necessarily an absolutist position. Very few pacifists hold to pacifism in an absolutist way. Tolstoy is one example of someone who does. And so he's an awkward pacifist for many pacifists because he will go all the way. And uh, he's like the very extreme example, what do you do if your kids are attacked? You can find places where he says, well, I wouldn't intervene. Others where he say, well, maybe. So even that he will go and few pacifists would follow. As an anarchist, he's awkward because a lot of anarchists have issues with the religious language and the pacifism, which not all anarchists subscribe to. As a Christian, he's awkward because he doesn't believe in the resurrection. He only likes Jesus because of his ethical teaching. In, you know, at the time there was scholarship, when he lived was when the scholarship on the historical Jesus was around, as in asking whether there really was a historical Jesus. And he was asked, what if that scholarship proves that there wasn't an actual figure by that name? He said, good, at least we can focus on his teaching. That's his line. And so clearly problematic for Christians. And so he's awkward, but he's really eloquent, as you'd expect him to be. He's thought-provoking. He makes thought-provoking observations. And so he's an awkward client who's influenced all sorts of people, who at the time was widely read by the intelligentsia, the literati, and clearly influenced lots of people, but not many of those would admit to being influenced by him directly, because the moment you mm -hmm. can cite him, you have to make excuses and distance yourself because of so much of what he says being problematic one way or another. His core focus, though, ultimately is about violence, right? It's his rejection of violence that makes him an anarchist, that makes him a sort of nonviolent activist. Gandhi says he was an important influence to him, although Gandhi was influenced by other things too. And Gandhi takes this in a much more strategic nonviolent activist line, whereas Tolstoy is a kind of ethical absolutist. His core focus is on violence. And apart from that, yeah, he's very critical of the exploitation of workers, whether in the factories or in rural communities. He's critical of land distribution that's highly unequal. He's heavily critical of the church, as I said. He's critical of state violence, whether it's especially the army as the kind of ultimate backstop for you know, state violence and legislation and coercion. He's, he promotes kind of objecting to 
conscription as a result, right, to sort of joining the army. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, he's got plenty to say about injustice, exploitation and marginalization. And I suppose at the end of the day, his advice tends to be, and in, in a sense, it's a bit simple and simplistic again, but it's basically stop being complicit. Don't take part in anything that will end up helping implement violence on your fellows. And I think you can extend that to other forms of injustice. So that ultimately, really, for him, the one obsession is violence. And then there's this piece I wrote a while ago in for the conversation, you know, this kind of yeah, journalism platform, which I suppose tries to ex extrapolate that. And I go into it a, a, a bit in the book. I think you can extend this advice that he has about complicity to us all. And so when people ask us, what can we do about the world today? You know, and at the time when I wrote that piece, I kind of, it was just after Trump was selected by the Republican Party before he's elected and just after Brexit. And you, people were saying, but what do we do about this? And my answer when people say there's very little we can do about the world is there's things we do almost on a daily basis that you could do differently. And there's, see if you spot the Tolstoy bits in there, I'll show up in a second. But there's as a producer, as a consumer, as a citizen and in the micro politics of the everyday. And so briefly, as a producer, what we do in our life is the main economic contribution we give to society during our lifetime. You can choose to go and work for the arms industry or not. You can choose, you know, you can use those skills in different ways. And from a Tolstoyan line, don't contribute to the evil you know deep down you're contributing to. As a consumer, I mean, sure, some, sometimes the kind of more ethical product is a bit more expensive, but you also know that some of these products are a bit more ethical, whether it's the kind of workers' rights, the environmental implications, whatever else. There are choices you make on an almost daily basis on what you consume, which especially for the middle classes and higher, not necessarily the working classes, they don't necessarily have much purchasing power, but if you do have purchasing power, you often know also deep down that there are problems in the way these things are produced. You could consume differently. In terms of citizenship, you can vote, sure, and Tolstoy's going to be ambivalent on that one, but anything from petitions to joining a trade union to all sorts of forms of activism that you can take part in, if not on a daily basis, on a regular enough basis, and the micro-politics of the everyday, when that uncle says the thing that's wrong at the Christmas table, where in the, you're in that queue in that supermarket and someone's saying something that's problematic, you can shut up or you can intervene. Now, intervening doesn't mean going full on and kind of risking the confrontation like, that could turn violent. But there are ways you can express solidarity with those who are being you know, demeaned or whatever else. And so there's at least four ways in which you can do things. And for each of these, from a Tolstoyan perspective, it's about asking, I suppose, about the, yeah, the complicity you might be displaying by not reacting, especially if deep down you know, and if you have actually more power than others to yeah. act differently, as it were. Long answer. but. Yes, I think Tolstoy is interesting. Yeah, no, Tolstoy is super interesting. I mean, I wish this is the kind of stuff our teacher of Russian literature told us, you know, because it was kind of, you know, here's War and Peace and Anna Karina, and then he lived in the village for 30 years, and that was it, guys. You know, it wasn't that interesting afterwards. The main interpretation of Tolstoy that has dominated since the Soviet years was the one that the Soviets put forward, which was that Tolstoy was a great patriotic writer, yeah. you know, read War and Peace and the canvas of Russian society, brilliant on that. The stuff he churns out later in his life, that's just wacky stuff. The, you can ignore that older man because he's not particularly relevant. And yet, that's the one that I think is more interesting. And of course, that became the prevalent view because the Soviets were 
felt threatened by Tolstoy. Lenin explicitly blames Tolstoy and Tolstoyanism for the failure of the 1905 revolution, you know, sees it as a threat and therefore precisely wants to kind of, you know, box it into yeah less threatening position. And that narrative that I've described became the narrative that was then adopted in the Soviet Union, preached to anyone who grew up in that context and has actually been adopted elsewhere too by now. And so we don't read the latter Tolstoy, even though we should. about is of course violence or non-violence. Disasters, you know, to us really are kind of a manifestation of violence in that they expose suffering that is induced by the state onto those on the margins. And what we increasingly see is kind of how violence is becoming more and more justified in the name of resilience, right? And I'm using quotation marks here for resilience, because the state needs to protect those who deserve the protection. And so the violence towards those who don't deserve is actually becoming, you know, is becoming more and more moralized. And Jason and I have spent a lot of time talking about this and we kind of, we write quite a lot about this and, you know, particularly engaging with Judith Butler's work. But then there is, of course, another side of this in that to overthrow the state, violence is needed. Your work, however, focuses on pacifism that is often accused of reinforcing the status quo, right, of being kind of predominantly white and middle class, of maybe not being able to sustain itself in the most challenging scenarios. And you've alluded to some of this already as you were talking to us today. So in other words, that kind of pacifism is philosophically maybe a little incoherent or kind of morally impoverished to an extent. Is it? Pacifism, I don't want to say as misunderstood, I don't know about exact equivalence, but is misunderstood to a similar degree as anarchism is in popular culture. It's often used as a term of abuse. To really call someone a pacifist is to imply that they're a kind of utopian dreamer, you know, clearly detached from reality, a bit like the anarchist is that kind of petulant child who hasn't grown up politically yet. Right, so there's a lot to unpack in what you said. Violence can command obedience, can get people to behave differently. We see that throughout history, but that doesn't convince people from the inside out. They will then do what you're telling them, not because they necessarily think that's the right thing to do, but because of the threat of punishment. That's not necessarily a very stable, by the way, resilient position in the long run. If you want people, ourselves, to live and behave differently, then for quite a few pacifists and for some anarchists too, you need to exemplify that inside out to become an example, a prefiguration of the alternative that you want to see. So I'm not sure that violence is essential to overthrow the state. Violence has been used to overthrow states, to overthrow leaders, but it's often resulted in similarly top-down and violent structures. There's a famous study you might have come across it by Erika Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, uh, 2011, I think, that looked at, I think it's 323 cases from, I think, 1900 to 2008 or thereabouts, so of over a century of instances of resistance to oppression, which they code as either violent or non-violent, and it's a mm. bit rough, but on the whole, they do that, and then they code for three outcomes, successful partly successful failure. And it turns out that 
both violent and non-violent resistance to oppression fail more often than they succeed, but violent resistance fails twice more often than non-violent resistance. Actually, non-violent resistance can succeed and seems to succeed at least as well as violent resistance. It also gives rise in the longer run to society's outcomes that are more respectful of human rights and democratically, democratic principles, etc., as opposed to what violent resistance does when it succeeds. And so that narrative that we commonly assume that violence is effective actually doesn't seem to be borne out by the evidence if you look at that particular set of evidence. It, I mean, yeah. So that's one line. I mean, I should say, Resisting non-violently doesn't mean that no violence takes place. But the very key to it is that you're not committing the violence. The violence is what's being inflicted upon you. And so it's risky. It's dangerous. It takes courage because you're looking at a regime that will use violence against you. But you're refusing, your refusal to engage in violence yourself shifts the moral high ground. And the idea, the argument is the theory, but the evidence from morality too seems to be that that's a potentially useful mechanism to shift the allegiance, including of elements close to the regime. Maybe not the leader who's oppressing you, but the various elements around them might change their mind faced by this determined non-violent opposition to what's being done. And so violence may or may not work. We assume it's effective, but much depends on how people who, to whom violence is done react. It actually isn't the case that it's always effective. There's plenty that can be done around this, and pacifism, nonviolence studies can contribute quite a bit, especially once we get past the assumption that pacifism is an absolutist position. There's actually a range of pacifist positions you can develop, but more to the point, pacifism is also a critique of war system and of our assumptions about the effectiveness of violence. For those listening in the UK who might have noticed that the red poppy is increasingly present, mm. not just in November, but all around the year, I wrote a pacifist critique of the poppy that absolutely doesn't linger on any absolutist position, but unpacks the implications of the way the poppy is increasingly used. There are, of course, accusations that pacifism is often white, middle-class, pro-status quo. I just think it's not the case that it has to be so. It might be so sometimes. Maybe it looks often quite white. But actually, among the prime early examples of non-violent movements are Gandhi's and Martin Luther King's. Not white, not particularly pro-status quo. And yes, violence might be difficult to sustain in difficult scenarios, but is that any different to violent warfare? Is that necessarily easier? All I'm trying to say is, there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot that's interesting. Not a lot has been done on this in the scholarship. There's more and more of it over the last 10, 20 years, perhaps. And this is my cue to mention the journal that we're launching next year, <laughs> in 2023, which is a journal of pacifism and nonviolence. The idea being that we want to precisely examine, not just celebrate uh, violence and pacifism. It's not just meant to be a love-in. We want to look at accusations against pacifism, the tensions between pacifism and non-violence, examples that we can find, how they relate to violence, the, how they relate to things like gender and ethnicity in ways that are genuinely, you know, sort of rigorous and fair, but get past the sort of often simplistic dismissal. So there's plenty to explore. Um, I agree, but it involves a suspension of too quick a judgment in the same way that you have to do that when you want to explore anarchism, 
failure, I suppose. This is super interesting. And yeah, thank you so much for talking about this all with us today. I really hope that disaster scholars would engage a little bit more with anarchist studies and, you know, to read up and just try to think about what disasters really are, right? Particularly when it comes to the violence that is imposed by the state. For those who are interested in this, our colleague Ruth Kinner edits Anarchist Studies, which is, I suppose, the prime journal in the field. I'm sure they'd be interested in pieces that look at disaster. And also there's a few good mailing lists and uh, the anarchist academics. There's the Anarchist Studies Network, which is a, a broader network of academics rooted in the UK, but with with global reach. And so people who are interested in exploring this with a disaster perspective will find a community of scholars on anarchism, I think, more than willing to engage with this. So there's that cue too. That's great. Thanks. Thanks for the plug. And we'll put some links on the show notes as well so our colleagues and friends can follow up on that. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Xenia, Jason and me, Alexandre Christianopoulos on Disasters Deconstructed podcast. <laughs>